How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started uh, this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to come together this evening to study your word and to think through uh, what you have taught in your word, what you've revealed to us, and to think about it in terms of application in our own uh, circumstances. Dealing with the topic of submission to authority is easy when the authority that we're submitting to is uh, going in the direction we want to go, but when we face conflicts with the authority over us, then it becomes difficult for us to understand how exactly to apply, especially that when that relates to a, a government that is set over us. Now, Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Romans 13, you'll help us to think clearly and precisely about what, what the Scripture teaches, that we may understand how to glorify you through its application. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're back in Romans chapter 13 looking at the question of obedience to authority. As I mentioned in my prayer, this is not always easy, and one of the things that always comes up when we start talking about this topic, especially in relation to government, and it's come up for at least the 45 years I've been conscientiously looking at this question, which takes me back to pretty much times when I was in high school, is how does this apply to the American War for Independence? And we got a question the last time, came in towards the end of class uh, from uh, Paul Yost. Now, I know who Paul is. He's a uh, professor with Tyndale Seminary. And I think he's up in the Philadelphia area. And he asked the question, uh, which I thought is important, and let me try to read, read this to you. He says, um, <clears throat> sometimes the situation appears to be the same kind of issue that faced the founding fathers of this country. I mean, one could very well wonder, at which point do we pick up arms? And that's a question that many people have thought about, and I know I've been asked that question. And many at that time, that is during the time of the American War for Independence, had such concerns and were addressing it biblically. It can be said that we went to war with a foreign government at that time. I don't think we could put it that way, but we did go to war with a government that with the government at that time in seeking independence from uh, the authority of Britain over us. So, what what about the justification to take up arms? Now, there's a lot. I'm not an expert on all of the things that went on with the American War for Independence. I've read a lot on it. I've read a lot on it on both sides. He goes on to comment. He said, apparently a pastor in Oklahoma believes that since we were founded as a Christian nation, it depends on what he means by a Christian nation, and therefore our Constitution makes us different than Rome. Yes, our Constitution makes us different from Rome, but authority is authority, and it's not any different. 
whether it's the authority of Nero, the authority of George Washington, or the authority of fill-in-the-blank, whichever president you despise the most. Okay? It doesn't matter because the Scripture says that the authorities are established by God. And whether that's involving his directive will or whether that's involving his permissive will, he is still the one who establishes those authorities. And he, and we'll look at examples historically as we go through this study that God raised up authorities such as the Chaldeans, and Habakkuk just gets his knickers all in a knot because when he found out that God had raised up th- such an unrighteous uh, authority to bring discipline upon Israel, even though he was praying for God to bring discipline on Israel and their disobedience, he just couldn't understand how God could use such, uh, raised up such an unrighteous authority as the Chaldeans. And that's within the sovereign prerogative of God. So God has his purposes, and we have to factor all of these things in. So when we look at passages like Romans 13, and we'll look at some others, no passage in Scripture says everything there is to say about the particular topic or the particular issue. And so we have to put together these different passages and understand what, what they are saying. Paul went on to write, I'm just wondering uh, what your apologetics are regarding someone who believes we were founded as a Christian nation, therefore justified to go to war with anyone who they believe threatens that status. Although, and then he mentions Dr. John Hanna, who was the head of the uh, historical theology department at Dallas Seminary, and under whom I did my doctoral work. Uh, Hannah said we were founded as a synergy between Christians and seculars. Yes, I, that was Hannah's position. That's one of the positions that's out there. You can read uh, 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 one segment of the uh, Christian scholarly uh, historical view, and they they look at the, what the situation in the colonies in the mid-18th century, and they say they were primarily influenced by secular philosophy. Then you look at some other people who counter that, such as David Barton, who's become a favorite of a lot of people on the right and the Tea Party. And David Barton says, no, that's not true. They were coming at it from a Christian perspective. And he will cite a number of people such as Charles, and including, he has a number of quotations from people like Charles Chauncey, and Jonathan Mayhew, and you ought to look their names up in Wikipedia sometime. They're not Orthodox Christian theologians. They're, they're some of the uh, early American Unitarian pastors in New England. They're not Orthodox. They're Christian only in a broad sense of the term. And Barton has been challenged many times on the how he uses the term Christian. He, you, and you have to make read with discernment that we're founded on a really when we say America is a, a Christian country, the precise way to say this is it's a country founded upon uh, Judeo-Christian values, which is how I've always stated this: that the primary world view that governed the colonies in the 18th century was a Judeo-Christian theistic worldview. But having said that, that's a pretty broad concept because just as today you have a lot of Christians who hold to a a Judeo-Christian worldview, they've also been influenced by other ideas that are in the culture. I can I can name you some 
some people, some theologians I know, who are clearly, they understand all the issues on Judeo-Christian worldview, and they're generally conservative, but I can point out that the way they use history is it shows how they've been influenced by postmodern ideas. I can point out some Greek professors and the way they use language and their linguistic the theory that they picked up here and there shows elements of how they've been influenced by postmodern views of, of language and language theory. And that affects their views of, of language and how you uh, exegete and how you interpret. So just because somebody... Uh, the leaders, the founders of this country were primarily influenced by Judeo-Christian worldview. There, there were other influences. Now, I disagree with Hannah. I, I came up under, under John when I did THM work. He changed a lot over the years. In fact, I've been told lately that everything with Hannah is now about Jonathan Edwards. Well, I did an entire doctoral program under him and who hardly ever mentioned Jonathan Edwards. So he's changed a lot. Uh, of his views over the years and become a little more, moved a little bit more towards what I would consider to be a mainstream evangelical uh, position. John's done a lot of research. He's done a lot that's very valuable and very helpful, but I would disagree. I think the truth is closer to Barton than it is to the other side, but that doesn't mean Barton's always right because, as I mentioned earlier, he will often make a statement, just as one example, that the ideas in the Declaration of Independence, and he will list a number of the different phrases, that these phrases were frequently found in the writings and the sermons of pastors for the previous hundred years, going back into England, uh, even in the mid-1600s. And yes, he's correct. We have to go back and look at our chronology, but it's important to understand that, that perhaps the most formative political document to come out of uh, Puritan Christianity in England was um, Samuel Rutherford's book, Lex Rex, that the law is king, that the king, in, even in England, is under the law, that he cannot make the law and he is not a law unto himself. Lex Rex influenced uh, a whole generation of philosophers and political thinkers, political philosophers and theologians, including John Locke, who was formative in the thinking of many of the American founding fathers. And John Locke is a mixed bag. I remember studying him when I was uh, did my master's work in philosophy here at the University of St. Thomas back in the 80s. Don't ask me to pull all that back up off the memory banks. It's buried pretty deep on the hard drive, and I don't know if I can pull it up. But I've read a lot since then. I've read some things that he said that were good. That's because he was brought up in a very strict Puritan home. And in a lot of ways, John Locke has a lot of right things to say. But if you look at his broad philosophical framework, he's, he is considered one of the founding fathers of empiricism. Coming out uh, with the beginning of the Enlightenment, you have Rene Descartes, who's a Jesuit mathematician who emphasizes rationalism. His very famous statement was, uh, I think, therefore I am. And just he, he used this principle that, that maybe everything around me is an illusion. Maybe God is just playing a big cosmic joke on me, and he's just making me think that all this stuff I see and everything around me is just an illusion. There's nothing real. Nothing exists. I don't even exist. And then he thought, well, if I'm thinking, then I must exist. So he said, ah, I think, therefore I am. 
That's what he meant by that. Because he had self-conscious thinking, he must exist. But he never could get out of his head. And that was called solipsism, which means you're just alone. You never can get from, from the existence of yourself thinking logically on the principles of logic and reason alone to the existence of other things outside your head. Now, that's a heavy thought for some of you tonight. That might be a heavy thought for your whole life, but that's, that's what, where, where Descartes was. And eventually, the weakness in that system was solipsism, and so the reaction to it were the empiricists. And John Locke was one of the foremost empiricists. Now, we've studied how we know what we know many times. I put the chart up on the screen, and I didn't do it for tonight. But we have three basic ways that, that human philosophy has come up with how you know truth. The first is empiricism, whether you're talking about, um, or the first is rationalism, whether you're talking about Plato in the ancient world or Descartes in the, in the modern world, and that began the modern enlightenment with, with Descartes. Or whether you're talking about empiricism, which would be, um, an example would be Aristotle in the ancient world and John Locke and others in the, in the uh, modern world, in the modern in, enlightenment. And, but rationalism and empiricism always go bankrupt because no matter how clear your thinking is, if you don't have revelation to give you the bits and pieces of important data that that you can't get from thinking alone you're going to you're going to run into a, a brick wall same thing happens with empiricism there's some things you just can't get to the greatest example is to remember that if adam and eve were placed in the garden and they were the most brilliant human beings ever created that no matter how well they thought in perfection and no matter how profound their observation skills were in empiricism in the garden, they never could have figured out by looking at that one tree in the middle of the garden that if they ate from it, they would die. The only way they could learn that was through revelation. Revelation gives us the key data we need in order to interpret thinking and in order to interpret the data of sense experience. Without revelation, it's just data. And we have to guess at what the unifying principles are in order to get anywhere. But as Christians, as Ju- from a Judeo-Christian heritage, we know that the only way we can ultimately understand truth, absolute truth, is if we start with the revelation of God. And so that that's a, the problem with, with Locke is that Locke starts with with human experience in the good sense, sense data, and sense, sense data from what we see, what we feel, what we taste, what we touch, uh, this, this, what we smell. This is what, what forms the basis. And, and the combination of rationalism and empiricism is what we often think of as the scientific method, and it's good as far as it goes, but it can't get you beyond a certain point. There are a lot of things that Adam and Eve could learn, could discover, could reason to while they were in the garden, but apart from revelation from God, they just couldn't get to universal ultimate truth and ultimate ultimate reality. So the weakness with Lockean political theory is he came to this position that that government is at the is from the consent of the governed. But that's not what we find in the Scripture. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, for there is no authority except from the people. Is that what he said? 
That's not what it says. It says there's no authority except from God. Now, it may be mediated through the voting booth where the people make choices, but ultimately, whoever they choose and whoever becomes president, whether you agree with them or not, like them or not, or whether there was massive voter fraud that was overlooked, the person that gets elected is the person that God and his permissive will has placed in authority. Now, you may not like it, and I may not like it, but that's that's kind of the way it is. So... Uh, let me see. I want to make sure I, I deal with this. Another thing that happened with the American War for Independence is it was preceded by at least a decade, maybe 15 years, of intense political ne- legal negotiations with England. And they, 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 it was a last resort, and, and, and it may have been a, a mistake that, that flared and that caused the shooting at Lexington and Concord, which actually occurred when? Anybody know the date? April 19th and 20th, this weekend, is the anniversary. It's it's a big holiday if you're in Boston. That's one reason they picked the date for the Boston Marathon when they do as close to Patriots Day. And so this is this is big, just right before San Jacinto Day. And y'all can remember San Jacinto Day, can't you? Yeah, so just remember that, that San Jacinto Day was just like one day off from Lexington and Concord. And the reason that, that you had the battle at Lexington and Concord, and you've heard me teach this many times before, the reason the Redcoats were coming, the reason Paul Revere warned about the Redcoats coming, is the Redcoats were seeking to arrest John Adams and John Hancock, who were hiding out in, in um, uh, Lexington at the home of the pastor of the Lexington Church, whose name was Jonas Clark. And when it, the, the alarm went out that the British were coming, uh, Jonas Clark put the word out, and the, the militiamen who were members of his congregation came out and stood in the town square to protect the life and the property of, of Adams and Hancock. And we don't know who fired the first shot. But the ultimate goal of those British troops was to go and confiscate arms that were being uh, stored at Concord and for the protection of the colonies because they still had Indian raids and Indian threats and other other problems. So th- this, <clears throat> this was important, and some of this was in violation of accepted British, British law. But when before the first shot was fired, they were still making, making moves in the courts to solve the problem, and that continued. That happens in April of what year? 1775. When's the Declaration of Independence signed? 1776. So, and, and, and so for the next 14, 15 months, the leaders in the colonies are still working through the legal process with England to try to resolve it. And what we find is people get impatient and they want to run. Well, you know, you we're hearing questions today, and I've heard them for seven or eight years, six or seven years now, or how long has it been? About five years. About when? When is this justified? We shouldn't even be thinking the question yet. I made the statement that we're a long way from that, and I don't mean that in a time sense. I mean that in a legal sense. There are thousands of legal options and court cases that need to be 
uh, adjudicated in, and are being adjudicated in order to resolve. We've got a major election coming up in the fall uh, in this, in, in this uh, con- mostly congressional election that can, has the potential of turning the tide. There's another major election in two years. The sad thing is, is that people who believe like most of you believe, who are even conservative evangelical Christians, were so, and I'm going to express my opinion here, were so freaking arrogant in this last election that because the Republican candidate was a Mormon, they, in their self-righteous haughtiness, refused to even vote. And whether you like it or not, my opinion is, if you didn't vote, you voted for Barack Obama. And that's the same thing I've said to every friend of mine who voted for Ross Perot and stuck their nose up in the air and said, well, I can't vote for somebody who's not right. I have to vote my conscience. Well, you don't understand reality. You're as divorced from reality as any flaco liberal I ever met. Be- yeah. <laughs> Because you don't understand the fact that this is a two-party country. And when you vote for the third party, whether it's a third-party guy on the left or a third-party guy on the right, you're basically throwing, throwing your vote away to the other major party. And that's what always happens, like it or not. I don't like it, but that's the reality. And you may disagree with me, and that's fine, but... You know, we have to learn to work smarter. And the conservatives are f- so fragmented. We are just like the Jews in, in the Jewish revolt in 66 to 70. They were so busy fighting each other that they couldn't present a united front against the Romans. And when the Romans were literally uh, besieging the walls and coming over the walls of Jerusalem, the, the various zealot and right-wing parties among the Jews were shooting each other as much and killing each other as much as they were killing the Romans. You don't ever hear anybody talk about dinos. How many Democrats have talked about people who are Democrats in name only? You don't hear it. Whether they agree or disagree with each other, they present a united front. But we have Republicans and conservatives that are shooting each other all the time. Now, there are a whole lot of Republicans that I really don't like, and I don't think they're very conservative at all. But but one of the things about this nation is that that the, the, the party swings the vote in Washington and the, the Speaker of the House pulls people in line. And, and we don't like that. that. That's the nasty side of politics. But that's what happens. And if you don't get a majority of, of Republicans in Congress, it, it isn't going to matter because we're going to continue the slide in the direction we're going. And the same thing applies in Texas. We've had about 10 years of, of a great Texas administration. And we have to be very careful who we vote this time to continue that because there's a lot of people on the right, myself included, who were very impatient. And we have to be careful that we're not too impatient because you can be impatient for change and push things and create a calamity. So we have to be very cautious about what we're going to do. So anyway, I tried to answer that question. We'll talk about the war for independence a little more as we go along. Second question that that came in uh, has to do with this Bundy situation that's going on right now. And I think that's a great test case, just like what went on in Ukraine. I mean, this is application. How do we we take the word of God and apply it to real-world situations? Because these are real-world situations, and they're not clean. They're, they're messy. I, I think Lexington and Concord wasn't as clean as some people would like it to be. 
because uh, real life is messy because people have mixed motives and people come from mixed backgrounds. Now, if you're not familiar with this situation, the situation going on right now, and it will go on for a while, is you have about a 65-year-old Nevada rancher by the name of Cliven Bundy who apparently he and his family and their ranch have been, had grazing rights on federal land in about 80, depending on who you look at, about 87, 88, 89% of Nevada is actually federal land. That's the most of any state in the union. Can you think, believe that? That much of Nevada is actually owned and administered by the federal government. Now, the reason that happened, apparently, I may get this wrong, but it's pretty close, is that when Nevada became a state, that this land that was owned by the state of Nevada became property of the federal government. Now, Clive and Bundy, this, this, the core situation here with Bundy and, and the thing at the ranch isn't about little guy, the little guy versus the Bureau of Land Management. Trust me. The Bureau of Land Management and other federal agencies have overreacted, have intimidated and bullied uh, Americans so much that this has created this scenario. But the reality in this situation is that Bundy hasn't paid his bill to the federal government in 20 years. The reason he hasn't paid his bill to the federal government in 20 years is he doesn't think the federal government has a right to that land. Now, that's a problem that goes back to, to, to Nevada state law and what happened when Nevada became a state, as far as I understand it. And I read the transcript, transcript of Bundy's interview with Glenn Beck last week, and I listened to Bundy's wife interviewed by uh, Greta Van Susteren last night, and they both were making the same case. We'll be glad to pay the money... But the federal government has no right to it. We'll pay it to, the, to, the, to Clark County, or we'll pay it to the, and they keep saying this, the sovereign state of Nevada. But they don't believe they should pay it to the federal government. Now, the background to this is that, <coughs> is that well, is that Americans are really frustrated because they view that their federal government has become increasingly an enemy to, to them and to their personal freedom. We have examples of the IRS targeting conservative groups seeking a tax-exempt status and the IRS seeking not to, not to hold up any progressive. Uh, several times it's been reported that not a single progressive uh, organization seeking tax-exempt status was subject to any kind of analysis or delay by the IRS. But conservative causes were not only that, but according to emails that were released this last week, just a couple of days ago, there were emails indicating that, that uh, employees of the IRS and the Justice Department were trying to figure out ways that they could bring criminal charges against these conservative groups. So an environment of hostility has been created, especially in this administration, about for individual citizens um, and trying to, um, uh, trying to put down conservatives. And so as a result, people are fed up, they're frustrated, they're anxious, and there's going to be a spark that's going to ignite something. Fortunately, even though a lot of people, and they shouldn't have, showed up with firearms, this should not have happened. This is not, a, you know, if you're going to fight, if you're going to do this, pick a case where the guy you're fighting for is in the right. It's the old adage, be sure you're right, then go ahead. And it's not clear at all. In fact, it's probably clear that the federal government really has the, the legal case on their side. 
that Bundy is not has not paid his bill, that legally the federal government has the right to manage this land. Whatever other motives may be there are irrelevant. They have, and he hadn't paid his bill in 20 years. And and you know what would happen to you or me if we hadn't paid our electric bill in 20 years? We'd have been really cold this morning, and we'd have been cold, really cold all winter long. We'd been hot last summer. That electricity would have been turned off for a long, long time. So I think that in some ways the federal government has been patient but there are in this. But there are a lot of other cases where they, they haven't been and they've come down really hard, and they, they're more likely to have been in the wrong. So we really have to look at each case and make sure we understand all the facts. And I should have started this by giving a little caveat. When we're this close to a situation in history, a lot of times we don't have enough historical distance to know all the facts. And every day new information is coming out. So we have to be very cautious in jumping to a conclusion simply because there are things that are going on that sound like things we would be sympathetic to. We have to really make sure we have all of the, all of the facts. And um, I think more has come out lately in listening to both Clive and Bundy and his wife indicate that the reason they, they are fighting the government on this is not the reason that I hear from a lot of the other people that are supporting them. So we have to be cautious. As Christians, we have to recognize we have a higher standard, and that standard is the Scripture. And we have to recognize that on the one hand, we have to be involved, we have to be responsible, and we have to be very active as citizens in the political process. From the grassroots up, that means getting involved at the local level, at the precinct level, all the way up at the state level, with every race being knowledgeable, being informed, uh, communicating, uh, because if we're not, we're just we're just abdicating our responsibility. And now's a time when things are really serious, when we really need to stand up and be counted and to be involved. And that's the legal process. People say, "What can we do? How can we resist the government by getting involved politically, by supporting positive candidates, by finding out more and more information about legal cases?" There was a case that came out. Just, uh, I, in fact, the email came in during Bible class last week that uh, Charlie Clough sent me about a professor who had been fired, some, fired from some university out in Southern California, took it to a court case, and the court reinstated him because he had an excellent record of doing his job as under the Lord. He had an excellent track record, but because he disagreed with the, the uh, politically correct views of the establishment of the university, they had found some trumped-up reason to let him go, and he already had tenure. And so the courts forced him back to tenure. So when right is on our side, it may take longer. The process is slower, but we have to work through the system. And as long as there are legal avenues available, that's what we need to be involved in. And it takes time. And unfortunately, a lot of us, myself included, happen to be just a little too impatient to take the time to go through the, the process. But when we look at the other side, they have worked for 30 or 40 years to build their structure. They've been following the, the uh, rules of, uh, what is, rules of, what is it, Alinsky's rules of radicals, rules for radicals. They've been building things. They've been working. That's what conservatives need to do. They need to do, uh, take their own action. But it's not going to change. We didn't get here overnight. We're not going to change it overnight, and violence 
is not going to bring that about. So we need to work very, very smart and recognize that we are a nation governed by the rule of law and that because of that, because of law, we have nearly exhausted all of the, all of the options. So we have to learn in the process that at times in life, whether it's in the academic environment of a, of a, of a school classroom or a university classroom or whether it's in the home, that's why it's important to teach authority orientation to children when they're young through discipline. There's been a, a rather uh, humorous little thing going around uh, through email recently that, yes, I have, I have basic psychological problems. My parents spanked me regularly when I was a child, and they grounded me and they disciplined me. Now that I'm adult, I suffer from psychological disorder called respect for other people's property. And if you want to see an example of what is happening to kids that are not disciplined, you go into classrooms in many public schools and they're absolute chaos because the, the teachers can't really do anything, but there's no discipline in the home. And, and it's been going on for a couple of different generations. So uh, we have to be recognize that, that, that we have a systemic problem here. And until we start addressing the real solution, which is the spiritual solution, and people get, get shift away from relativism to uh, thinking about life on biblical terms of the absolute, the political solution isn't going to go very far because a, many conservatives are just as self-absorbed and just as arrogant as many liberals. They're not grounded on the word, on divine viewpoint, any more than liberals are. Just because a lot of their opinions may align with ours a little more consistently doesn't mean they're really right. And often we can get caught up in making a selection between one form of arrogance versus another form of arrogance. And the only way to really change this country is what changed it to begin with, and that was the influence of biblical Christianity and a Judeo-Christian worldview. And until that changes, it won't change. And I've got, I've got unfortunate news for you. Apart from a massive work of God, not that he can't do it, but I don't think he will, it's not going to change. It's just going to get worse, and it's going to get a lot worse. And people have been saying that for 40 years. And we, if you look back since World War II, there are a few places where the, re, the, the digression slowed, but it didn't, it didn't stop, it didn't pause, and it didn't reverse. We, it just declined less rapidly for a few years. But what happened during those times is that progressives reorganized and gained strength. For some reason, conservatives don't do that. I saw this little cartoon today, thought it was amusing about the Bundy thing. The sign says, federal land grazing by permit only. The cow in the middle is a Bundy ranch with hundreds of guns pointed at him. It says, I should have disguised myself as an illegal immigrant. The problem with the federal government response on this is they sent in snipers, they sent in special forces troops. They've done, they, they, their reaction has been horrible. Their action has been unacceptable. It hasn't been warranted at all, but it is typical of the way the federal government has been handling a lot of things recently, uh, and it's no wonder that people want to react to it. They resent having a federal government that is 
so so opposed to their property rights and to their freedom. Okay, now before we go on, let's uh, or as we go on, what we have to remember when we look at this is that it was through God's use of unjust authority. God used uh, God's use of a tyrannical authority that accomplished salvation. Tyrannical authority both on the part of the Sanhedrin and especially on the part of Rome. Jesus' crucifixion was the result of unjust rulers that were forcing their policies upon the population in Judea. What was Jesus' response as he's being forced into an illegal execution by the unjust powers. Did he react? Did he assert his rights? Not at all. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself by being obedient to the Father to submit himself, the eternal second person of the kingdom, uh, of the eternal second person of the Trinity, who is perfectly righteous, who is totally without sin, refused to assert his own rights against the unjust authority of Rome and the unjust authorities of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. What that tells us is something we don't like to hear. It's not comfortable. That in many cases, it is more Christ-like to submit to injustice and to put the situation in God's hands than to rebel and disobey because we know that God has a greater plan and we have to learn to trust in him. So in the U.S., we're ruled by constitutional law. We're proud to say that we're a country based on the rule of law. Sadly, too many people who say that are breaking the law out of the other side of their mouth, but we are a nation of laws. Under our constitution, we're a republican form of government, a representative republic. As conservatives like to remind everyone, we're not a democracy. Democracy means mob rule. We are a representative republic. That means we elect representatives and senators to go to the legislator and to represent us as a body politic, we the people, and to vote and to make laws. The problem with that is the laws that they make may not be the laws we want them to make. But whether your representative represents you or not, whatever they do represents you legally. They're your representative. Some of you may live in a district where you have a liberal Democrat, and that liberal Democrat always votes ways you wish they wouldn't. But guess what? That's your vote, whether you like it or not. That's your vote. This last week I heard a speaker at a, at a uh, Republican women's meeting last week, and in the midst of his message, this was a friend of mine who was speaking, in the midst of the message he did something that is typical rhetoric for somebody trying to rouse the crowd to action. He asked three questions. He said, did you vote for the IRS to investigate conservative organizations for tax exempt status? Well, did you? What's your answer? Did you vote for uh, the IRS to investigate conservative groups? No. That's what everybody said. No. Did you vote for the Bureau of Land Management to round up the cattle belonging to Clive and Bundy? No. 
Did you vote for Congress to socialize our economy by voting in Obamacare? They all scream no. But the reality is all those people live in one of the most conservative congressional districts in the state and in the country. And their congressional representative voted against all those things and is opposed to all of those things. But the reality is if we believe in majority rule, which we do, then under that principle, we all voted for this. That's what representative republics do, and that's what our representatives do. You don't like it? Change them. Our frustration, my frustration, is that I like my congressman. He votes just the way I would vote. I like my senators. For the most part, they vote just the way I would vote. But the problem is I can't go change those idiots that get voted in from New York and Maryland and uh, Virginia and Connecticut and Massachusetts, and we're outnumbered, especially in the Senate now, not in the House. But that's how. So if we want to change anything, we've got to be involved somehow in affecting this kind of a change. So we have to recognize we, we operate on the rule of law, and when we don't win the elections, we don't get to make the rules. And it's sad when there are certain people on the other side who, when they win the elections, they use that to try to completely eradicate any future uh, use of power by the opposing position. And it really is bad when their gamesmanship is better than ours. And we what happens? We get frustrated, very frustrated. We have a state that's the best state in the union. We have a state that is the most conservative state. Well, not quite. I think Oklahoma is more conservative than we are. But we're pretty conservative. But we could do better. But it's only going to happen when we, when we vote. Now, the problem we have, we'll skip the next couple of slides, is that this aspect in Romans 13.1 that, as I looked at it last time, every soul is, should be subject to governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that are exist are appointed by God. Now, right now, I want to look at that word authority. That word authority is exousia, which is the word in the lower right, and it means an authority or power refers to the uh, tribunate. Now, that word is used in a very interesting context. What Paul is saying in Romans 13 is that there's no authority except from God. You may think it's a bad authority. You may think it's a corrupt authority. Guess what? Jesus had a conversation with one of the most corrupt authority figures around, and that was Pontius Pilate, John 19, verse 10. Then Pilate said to him, Are you... Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? Same word. I have the authority to crucify you and authority to release you. Jesus answered, you could have no power. Same word. You could have no power, no authority at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus affirms that the power that, that Pontius Pilate wielded wrongly was power that was delegated to him through the permissive will of God. That's, these are difficult things to grapple with when we're the ones who get put between the rock and the hard place 
by a federal government that isn't doing what we think is right and when we believe the Constitution of the U.S. is totally against them. One of the problems we have is for the last 150 years, the legal entities have all agreed in all of the cases that go against what we believe to be the correct uh, interpretation, strict constructionist interpretation of the law. Now, not all of them, but, the, but because they change. But the, we have to realize that the tide of history is going out. It came in before 1850. It's been going out since 1850. And, you know, there's not a whole lot we're ever going to do to change that. These things have, have happened. We can fight some battles, but I don't think we're going to win this war because we're living in the devil's world. And we have to remember that. And that's not a pleasant thing, a pleasant thing to remember. So it was much worse for Christians who lived under the Roman, Roman Empire. God appoints every ruler, though, even when they're unjust. He allows them to rule for his, for his purposes. So in Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every soul or every person be subject or subordinate to the governing authorities. For he that is a governing authority is God's minister. An avenger, and we've seen that that word doesn't mean like taking personal vengeance. It has the idea of executing righteousness and justice legally. He that is the governing authority is an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Now, there's several things that we're going to look at here as I continue this study in the first um, these first two verses. There are some who've taken this word that shows up in in Romans 13:1, the governing authorities. There are some that have taken this and argued that the core meaning of the word is to excel, to exceed, or be better than, as you see in the blue panel on the left. And they then argue from that, and this is a logical fallacy and a linguistic fallacy, that citizens should only obey those authorities who possess a higher standard or a higher value. But that's not what this word implies. As the article in uh, the Bauer Danker Arndt Gingrich lexicon goes on to demonstrate, the word a word's meaning is determined by a, by its context. And when this word is used in the context of governing authorities, it's talking about higher authorities versus lower authorities. There's a hierarchy of authority in any country, from your your highest authority in the land, whether it's a king or a prime minister or a president, to the lowest authority in the land. We have we have local uh, city government, then we have county government, then state government, and then federal government. There's a hierarchy uh, of power there. And so what this is talking about is higher or governing authorities. That's how the word is used when in a context of talking about, about government, uh, government positions. And so and I'm, I, I quoted that, or the reference I made there, was actually to a document or a book that was originally published in 1853 by James Wilson entitled The Establishment and Limits of Civil Government, an Exposition of Romans 13, 1 through 7. This, is a, this book was republished by American Vision Press. 
Now, American Vision Press also publishes, and some of their uh, related entities publish a lot of homeschool material. And those of you who homeschool need to be very much aware of this because these folks are Reconstructionists. They're post-millennialists, and they're Reconstructionists. And what is hidden behind a lot of their uh, political theory and their activism is their post their desire to change America into their version of a Christian nation. Now this this wing of evangelical Christianities is extremely small, but they have a publishing house and they influence a lot of people through their publishing house and they've influenced a lot of families uh, through the way they promote their political theory in homeschool material. And I know people whose families have been disrupted because they've had uh, people in their in their families who have uh, changed to become hyper Calvinists because that's the position of these post mill uh, the, uh, theocratic reconstructionists. And so uh, we have to be careful. And this is a very popular book that is promoted by a lot of conservatives because it's it's promoting the idea that the U.S. is a Christian country. And out of frustration, a lot of evangelicals gravitate to these kinds of things because they're looking for information. They're trying to understand the influence of Christianity in the history of this country, and especially the background during the American War for Independence. So they go for books like this. But unfortunately, Wilson's arguments and his biblical exposition doesn't stand up to accurate biblical analysis and understanding the language uh, language of the text. He will interpret this reference to government authorities to indicate only the institution of government. But that's not what the text goes on to say. And when you compare it with other passages in the New Testament, Paul isn't just talking about authority in the abstract or the institution of government in the abstract. He's talking about individual uh, individuals who hold positions of authority. And so we'll see this in other uh, brought out in other passages. He, when he makes the point, whoever resists the authority and the instance, whatever the authority is, it's not just talking about the king. It's talking about any authority. Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist that government will bring uh, judgment uh, upon themselves. And so this is talking about about opposition. Now, I know that there are some of you who are saying, well, wait a minute, this is not. we're not just puppets under a tyranny. No, we're not. Whether you're talking about children to parents, wives to husbands, students to the authority in the classroom, soldiers to uh, officers over them, we're not. This is not a carte blanche check. There are exceptions in Scripture, and we have to pay attention to those exceptions. But the reason I'm teaching it this way is because the default position of your sin nature is to be a rebel. That's what you got from Adam. We are inherently rebels against authority. I don't have to teach you to, to, to oppose authority if you don't like it. You're going to figure that out all by yourself. My problem is getting you to really understand how firm the, the Scripture is on obedience to authority because we live in a nation, especially from those who are baby boomers and younger, who have been, uh, who have been influenced by a society whose mantra is to question authority no matter what. And we think, well, that's good because that makes us independent thinkers. 
Well, there, there's an aspect of that that's true. But, when, but, but if we're questioning authority in the sense of always rebelling, never accepting it, it leads to chaos. Only under authority orientation can we have order and can we operate as a team and achieve an end. So the scriptures are very clear. Remember, the very first sin was one that was in opposition to authority, the sin of Satan. The sin of man in the garden wasn't an egregious sin, but it was in a disobedience to, to an authority, uh, a, a command by God. And Eve just sat there and said, well, it doesn't look all that bad. It looks pretty good. It might even taste good. I mean, that's what the snake said. Was it, it tasted good. And, and the snake also said, God's just trying to keep good things from us. And so there was a whole rationale behind that. And she said, well, I'm just going to eat it and find out for myself. And that's the pattern. Well, it's not so bad for me just to disobey my parents this one time, but it sets a precedent. It sets a pattern. It happens later on in marriages. It happens later on in the workforce. This is why the Bible again and again is emphasizing uh, this whole issue uh, of submission. Now, one of the things that Wilson and others today, not just Wilson, but there are others who come along and do this, is they come along and they look at a passage like Hosea 8.4. God is speaking to Hosea uh, during the time of um, uh, approximately the time of Isaiah, and he's he's pointing out the spiritual failures and flaws in in Judah. And in God's critique, or, or excuse me, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in God's critique of the northern kingdom of Israel, he says, they set up kings, but not by me. Now, this is taken out of, a, out of the whole biblical context of biblical history. Number one, there is, if there's no authority established except from God, Romans 13.1, then you have to reconcile that by Hosea 8.4. Were the Jews just in such autonomous rebellion that they could put up a king that's not from God? No. What Hosea is saying, what, what God is saying through Hosea is they set up kings that weren't according to my desired will, my revealed will, but I allowed them to do this because they have volition. And they chose wicked rulers. They chose bad rulers that weren't righteous according to my standard, but I allowed them to do that because they have volition. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. The people chose leaders that reflected the values of the people, the spiritual rebellion of the people. And if we've got a problem with the leaders in this country, we, and I'm using this collectively, not in terms of us individually, but as a nation, we just have to look in the mirror to see what the problem is. We're electing leaders that reflect the values of the majority of the people in this country. Whether the majority, whether that's actually true or not, I don't know, because there's a lot of people who won't get involved in the political process, and they think that if they're Christians, well, that's too secular. John Nelson Darby was like that. He thought that it was carnal for Christians to vote or to, for Christians to even be involved at all in, in the political process. That's the secular world. We're ambassadors from the eternal kingdom, so we, we shouldn't be involved at all. You ever wonder why you've heard pastors say that you shouldn't be involved in a political activism and have taken a, a strong stand that way, and then the next night they're railing 
against how awful the political system is. It's, it's, it's almost like they've got a split personality or multiple personality. It's because within our tradition, as dispensationalists and evangelicals, half of our, half of our spiritual fathers were saying, you don't need to know anything about the political process because it's all carnal. And the other half is saying you need to be involved up to your eyebrows. And so we get people, pastors coming out of seminaries who one day they're one way and the next day they're the other way, and they don't really define terms for us like political, like Christian activism or things like that. And on the one hand, it's okay for people to get involved in politics as a career, but don't go down and demonstrate legally and constitutionally for a just cause. Don't lobby Congress. That's activism. That's insane. That's not biblical. It's not constitutional. If the squeaky, under the principle, the squeaky wheel gets the most grease, Christians have only squeaked to God, and they should squeak to God. But the people who are representing you need to hear you squeak also, legally and constitutionally, not by going and grabbing your AR off the wall and marching on Washington in something like the bonus march of the 1920s, but by writing letters, finding out what's the most effective way to communicate to the Congress. I wonder how many people in this congregation have their congressmen their, their, and their two senators on speed dial on their phone other than me. One or two. That's very good. We all should. Every hand should have gone up. I mean, every time I read of something or hear of some legislation, I'm calling John Cornyn, Ted Cruz, and... Uh, Ted Poe, and letting them know what I think every single time. It doesn't take long to make your voice heard. Most They figure for every person that lets them know something, there's 100 or 200 people in the district who feel the same way that don't have the time to call them. So the voice of one person has a tremendous impact. It's too bad that whenever I try to send letters to some of those other folks who are representatives in the area, you can't get through because you're not in their district, so they don't. They, you can't ever say anything to them. But anyway, God has a permissive will, and he allows rulers that aren't, are going to rule, but not according to the way you and I would like them to rule. That's when it gets tough. That's when we have to uh, address the issue. Now, there's another situation that occurs in the Old Testament related to permissive will, and that's seen in Psalm 94, 20. To 23. There we read, Shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law. Anybody want to put a name on that? You don't, don't say it out loud. We'd probably all say the same name. The throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you. Talking about God. They gather together against the life of the righteous. In other words, the, the governing leaders are evil and they seek to destroy the influence of the righteous. And they condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense. Notice it hasn't been the political action committee. Not that that's wrong because in our system, it's not that the system under the Hebrew kings wasn't, didn't have the constitutional setup that we have. The system under Rome didn't have the constitutional setup we have. The constitution we have gives us the responsibility to be involved in the system. It's a representative democracy. 
So we need to be involved. It's not an either-or. We need to be involved but recognize that ultimately the real significant issue is spiritual and the real protector is God, not the political process and the political emphasis. And we have to keep maintain that maintain that balance. But the psalmist says, The Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity. We need to be taking this before the throne of heaven all the time. And, and it goes on, he goes on to say, And shall cut them off from their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. So what, he, what uh, the psalmist is saying there is that we need, even though we submit to authority, that doesn't mean we agree with them. And it doesn't mean that we don't do everything we can within legal bounds to oppose them. Now, we'll get into the topic of legitimate civil disobedience later. There are clearly examples of Scripture for for legitimate civil disobedience, and we understand that. But we have to first establish the principle of submission to authority and who establishes the authority. Then we can understand better how to apply the issues of civil uh, civil disobedience. No authority has a right to tell anyone to do anything that violates the directive specific revelation of God. No authority has the right to tell anyone to do something that is that 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 harms their life, that is immoral, that is unconstitutional or unbiblical. No one has the right to do that. But when it comes to questions like no authority has a right to tell you what is unconstitutional, you have to recognize, and I have to recognize, that what is determined, whether we like it or not, what is determined to be constitutional is determined by Congress and the Supreme Court, whether we like the way they, they arrived there or not. I understand the, the historical issues there, but since the early 19th century, the reality is that the Supreme Court has been accepted as the arbiter whether you agree with it or not, of what the meaning of the Constitution is. They are the hermeneutical absolute for determining the meaning of the Constitution. Do they have that right constitutionally? I don't think so. But that doesn't matter anymore because that's not accepted. This isn't easy to hear because most of us believe that our country is on the skids and that unless something... We just want to scream for people to wake up. But... That's not the reality in which we live. If you have the privilege and the fun of living in one of the dominant blue states, your frustration level would, would really be high. We live in Texas, and because we live in Texas, we often recognize the problems that the rest of the country just doesn't see. And in conversations I've had with many people on the eastern seaboard who who are not conservative is that they think we have absolutely lost our minds, that we are nuttier than fruitcakes, and that we are absolutely dangerous to the future of this country. And they believe that down to the marrow of their bones. And you believe just as strongly the opposite. The only hope is the grace of God. And that's why we have to be in Bible class, and that's why we have to be making learning spiritual truth the highest priority because I don't think it's going to get better. And if it does, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and to think them through this evening and to to recognize that, 
that there are some real challenges we face uh, individually, personally. Some of us have problems with authorities in the home. Some of us have problems with the authorities at work. Others have problems with authorities in government. Some have problems with every authority because there's so much that is that lacks integrity in our culture. And yet we're commanded in Scripture to shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we can only do that if we're walking in integrity in terms of our obedience to authority. Real Christ-likeness is humbling ourselves in obedience, even when that may cost us a tremendous amount. And even though it may not be the right thing, even though it may be an example of injustice in our lives, we follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are times to stand firm against authority, and there are times to not. And we need the wisdom to know the difference and how to accurately apply your word in each of these circumstances. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.